Some of the hardest problems in the world exist far above the planet. Our job, to launch the smartest solutions, to protect our satellites, clean up our clutter, to propel breakthroughs in propulsion, to learn more about our place in the universe, to outpace emerging threats. Every day, the Aerospace Corporation uses the latest technologies to ensure our nation's safety and leadership in space. Hi, and welcome to the Space Policy Show. I'm your host, Rebecca Rose. As always, you can find us on Twitter using hashtag the Space Policy Show, and you can engage with our experts on Vimeo using the chat box. We would also like it if you would sign up for our latest news and alerts at aerospace.org policy. Today's episode is on building normentum, norms of behavior in space. We're pleased to be hosting Robin Dickey and Katrina Melograna to discuss Robin's recent findings from her current research on developing a framework for norms of behavior in space. You can download this new paper at aerospace.org policy to learn more. Robin Dickey is a space policy and strategy analyst at Aerospace's Center for Space Policy and Strategy with a focus on national security, space, and international relations. Katrina Melograna is a graduate intern at the center and currently a student at Leiden University in the Netherlands studying air and space law. Welcome to you both and over to Katrina to get us started. Thank you, Rebecca. I'm here today in person with Robin Dickey. Robin's here to talk to us today about her new paper, Building Normentum, a framework for space norm development. Great use of the word norm. Um, and this paper is about norms of behavior in space. So in the space world, we have rules, we have policies, we have regulations and treaties. But there's a general agreement, I think, in the space community that these are not really keeping up with how fast uh, innovation is happening in the space world and, and capabilities. And all of the new uh, space actors entering the scene globally. So why are space norms such a big topic right now? Why is this important to talk about? Yeah, absolutely. So norms run our lives everywhere, not just in space. You know, norms are why in DC, you're supposed to stand on the right side of the escalator while the people walk on the left side or else they get mad at you. Or norms can be things like following a speed limit or any kind of pattern of behavior that people generally think this is acceptable or this is not acceptable. So first of all, norms are everywhere, but norms in space are a particularly uh, crucial issue right now in space policy because like you mentioned, things are changing really rapidly space is becoming more and more important to our everyday life. And there's lots of risks and challenges that come with operating in space. Things are moving at tens of thousands of miles per hour in space, and they are running risks of collisions. Behavior by one actor in space could affect lots of people in space or, or lots of different actors that are relying on space for services. So there's lots of reasons why it's good to have uh, agreement on what behavior is appropriate or inappropriate. So that's why it's become a really big conversation lately. So in the paper, though, you mentioned that there are multiple definitions or understandings of the terms norms of behavior, especially when it comes to space. So you define it in your paper as how you're going to use it in the paper. So can you tell us what that is to set the stage and then also tell us why it's so important to make that clear definition. 
Absolutely. This was kind of the big first hurdle that I had to get over when uh, looking at norms and how do we study them? How do we develop them? And that's because everyone has just a slightly different definition that they think of when it comes to space norms. Um, and it can be different for policymakers, academics. And so as I was doing my research, the definition that I settled on was generally accepted standards of appropriate behavior for space. And there's a couple, or for states, I should say, there's a couple key elements to that. Um, that for states part is important because I ended up focusing mostly on how different countries interact with each other, especially because we have U.S. national policy that is looking at um, developing and leading the development of norms of behavior. So how is that interacting on a diplomatic level? So that's an important part of the definition. The other important part is the idea of general agreement on what's appropriate. And this is a, a difficult one because there are many different ways to reach general agreement. That's not kind of a, a very specific, limited uh, part of the definition. So you could use something like international law or a treaty to get agreement from different countries on what the norm could be. Or it could be something a lot more informal and different countries just speaking up and saying, hey, this behavior is acceptable, this behavior isn't. Or there's also in between written agreements that aren't considered you know, legally binding. So lots of different ways to reach that general agreement. And that's a very deliberate choice I made so that norms are not just things that sometimes people see as voluntary, non-legally binding. It could be approached through multiple different avenues. Well, in the paper, you established a framework for establishing norms. And so can you walk us through those and describe them? Absolutely. It's a kind of a four decision point framework that I create. And the idea is instead of trying to solve all the problems uh, and all the complex issues that come with norms, instead, I'm trying to really pinpoint what are the key questions and what are the trade-offs and the different options that you could balance between as you go through the process of developing a norm. And so the, the four points are, first of all, establishing domestic buy-in. And that's the idea of before you're trying to internationally promote and introduce a norm, you actually have to figure out how you're defining the norm, what norm you want, and which entities within a government are responsible for what elements of actually leading that, that norm development. The second point is kind of the international starting point. Who are your first partners going to be? And so that's the idea of you could start with just a group of friends and allies, like-minded nations, or you could introduce a norm into the United Nations or a much larger, maybe consensus-focused forum. The third point is different mechanisms that you can choose to generate international commitment. This is the idea of how are you measuring how much other states are actually agreeing with and supporting the norm. How are you ensuring that if, if you're going to follow a norm, that others are going to follow that norm, like they say, as well. And so the fourth and final point is the idea of setting a target for what I call the critical mass. And this is something that came up in the academic literature as well. But it's the idea of needing to be a little more deliberate in what you think the finish line is going to be for norms. When is a country or a group that's trying to lead the development going to consider their development a success? 
so how many countries, how many different groups need to be on board with the norm for them to think, yes, we have that general agreement. We're good to go moving forward with saying that that is a norm. So those are the four points. Um, each one has its own trade-offs and alternatives. Um, and I really break that down in detail in the paper. It, it, it's a, it sounds like a great way to boil down those points, but as you said, there are absolutely challenges and trade-offs in those. Could you give us an example of a trade-off or a challenge um, in one of the points that you mentioned? Absolutely. Um, I would say the point two is a good example, that starting point, the initial partners, um, because that's one where things that make the introduction of the norm easy at the beginning can give you challenges later on. So starting with a small group of allies, partners, countries that have kind of the same opinions on space activities can make it a lot easier to kind of solidify what that norm is going to be that you're promoting and easier to maybe get a little bit of that initial momentum towards international support. The problem is then is if you start with a small exclusive group when you're trying to bring other states from outside that group on board, they might see that exclusivity and say, hey, this is not legitimate. I didn't get to buy into this. I didn't have a hand in shaping it. And that can make it much harder down the line when you're really trying to build that up to get the general agreement. And so, you know, it, there's a trade-off, especially in thinking short-term versus long-term in different approaches. You mentioned earlier uh legally binding instruments, non-legally binding instruments when we're talking about establishing norms. So for instance, uh, a legally binding instrument would be like the Outer Space Treaty. Uh, you know, the member states are legally bound to the, the terms and principles in this treaty. Another example would be the FAA regulations launch companies bound to these rules. Can you give us some kind of um, example or, or talk to us about the benefits of those legally binding documents, but also what are some of the downsides of having a legally binding document? Yes, this is a, a pretty hot topic for discussion, especially in the United Nations, kind of the, the legally binding versus voluntary discussion is, is one that's gone on for decades. And so talking to different experts, um, it's clear that there are some important issues that are really helpful when it comes to treaties. One of the big ones being longevity. The Outer Space Treaty signed in 1967 and 50 years later is still seen as the, the cornerstone of international space law. So that's really nice when if you are looking for commitment from other countries, international law is kind of seen as the highest threshold of commitment that you can get and that therefore it lasts between different administrations potentially with things shifting uh, over time, that can be a really positive uh, element of treaties. The problem is, you know, the flip side of that is things do change. Technology changes, capabilities change, who, which actors are important for what things can change. And so the big downside of treaties is that they are not flexible. They can take forever to negotiate and so sometimes by the time you've actually settled on an agreement and solidified a treaty, it perhaps is already obsolete and just isn't able to kind of change with the times, which for space and space technology can be particularly important. And another challenge is even though treaties are perhaps seen as the, the highest level of commitment, 
there are still ways that that commitment can be broken. It's far, far from ironclad. You know, you can withdraw from a treaty. Other states might cheat on the treaty or, or lie about whether or not they're complying. And so with treaties being seen as so high commitment, so costly to get into, it then becomes perhaps even worse if someone goes back on their agreement. And so kind of the, the combination of the inflexibility and there's, it's still fallible in the end makes it really hard to be sure that you can successfully, feasibly get that treaty going. Um, so, yeah, lots of challenges. Um, it sounds like a common theme, though, throughout this is it takes time. Like, no matter which method you use, it's going to take time. Um, one of the questions I had was, if you are a state developing norms, how are, or a country developing norms, how do you get other countries to buy into that? Let's say without a formal legal document or formal negotiations, how can you get that buy-in? So one really important element of the, that third decision point, the establishing commitment, is that it is not just a choice between legally binding or non-legally binding. There's actually a really rich, diverse array of options for how to bring other states on board. So one example would be using more positive incentives, like the Artemis Accords or um, space uh, situational awareness data sharing agreements. Those are really interesting positive incentives because you can say, hey, if you make your systems more interoperable or if you're more transparent with your data, then we can actually provide data back to you or we can create a, a community that's providing benefits so that you're not just dealing with the costs of constraining yourself in a norm. And so those positive incentives, I think, are, are a really interesting option. There's also the idea of not just non-legally binding, but also politically binding. The idea that you can make agreements that maybe aren't ironclad international law, but because they are written and agreed to and established among different countries, a sense that there is some kind of political cost or there might be repercussions if you withdraw from that. So almost the, the peer pressure approach, uh, which of course is, is very big when it comes to norms. And then finally, there is the, the fully ad hoc response option. And so you might see that as, for example, the response to the 2007 uh, Chinese anti-satellite test against one of their own satellites where they destroyed it created thousands of pieces of debris, some of which are going to be in orbit for decades to come. And that pretty immediately got a very strong international response with lots of countries all over the world saying, this is unacceptable. You cannot do that to the space domain. And, and so that is a hint of a way that you could maybe work towards a norm without having anything written down. Um, the downside to that, of course, is it's really ambiguous. There's a lot of debate now is, do we have a norm against blowing up satellites or what kind of elements are important in the norm? How strong is it? Really hard to tell when it's not written down. So again, everything has pros and cons. Uh, you mentioned the Artemis Accords and it, it reminded me that um, the increasing um, involvement with commercial actors in all of this. So is it important? And if it is, how important is it to have commercial actors involved in the developing of norms? 
So the, the short answer to that is they are so important. <laughs> Commercial and non-state actors are, in many ways, the, the issue and the, the challenges and the opportunities in working them into norms was so big that I, I didn't feel I could do it justice in, in my one paper. Um, and I think it's something that needs to be discussed and developed a lot more. But the um, approach that I kind of mentioned in the paper is that when you're looking at actors that actually have to follow the behavior, more and more these days, that's that's commercial actors that are operating and launching satellites. And even though in the Outer Space Treaty, it says states are responsible for you know, monitoring, regulating, they're ultimately responsible for non-state actors' behavior, it still means that when the, the commercial actor is ultimately going to have to comply or not comply with the norm, if they understand the norm from the beginning, if they support it, if they perhaps have input onto what's feasible and not feasible for them to actually comply with or what they would need to get there, then that can make a norm so much more effective in the long run because you have that buy-in from the beginning. So we've talked a lot about why we need them, um, how we can establish them, how we can, the different methods. But when do we know something's actually become a norm? <laughs> That's a great question and uh, speaks back to that fourth decision point of setting the, the target. Where are you putting your, your finish line? And this is a, an element that really isn't discussed explicitly often in, in norm development. Not many people are saying, you know, hey, how many people do we actually need to call this a norm? But if instead of looking at some kind of metric that you're trying to guess what's a norm and what's not, if you instead you kind of set that target from the beginning, if that's a decision that's actually being made of we're going to aim to get these states on board, that can be really useful in measuring progress towards reaching the norm, adjusting if things aren't kind of working along the way. And it is one where we've seen all types of different sizes for the critical mass in space norms. So if we go all the way back to 1963, the US and the Soviet Union and the United Kingdom signed the Limited Test Ban Treaty, which basically says no one's gonna detonate nuclear weapons in space. And so, again, it was only three countries that signed the treaty, and yet that has been a pretty rock-solid norm all the way up until the present. That was kind of built on, it was expanded in the Outer Space Treaty, which of course has over 100 member states to that. So you can do, as they did, uh, agreements just among you know, the states with the most significant capabilities. So if the people who have to comply with the norm are all in on the agreement, and that happens to be a small group, say, you know, there's not too many countries that have launch capabilities. So if maybe if you do it among that group, and it's a launch related norm, then a small critical mass might work. But you also have problems of other countries gaining capabilities over time. Um, and if they're not bought in from the beginning, then they might dismiss the norm, um, because they, they weren't a part of it. Or the, on the other hand, we have so many states today, almost all of them, that really have some stake in space activities. Everyone uses space for different services, even if they don't own their own satellites, which means that any state can and, and does uh, get involved in diplomacy and discussions. And so that might make a really strong case for really looking for consensus and a broader buy-in and therefore a much larger critical mass for developing the norm. 
you took these this framework, these frameworks, and applied them to real world scenarios. I'd like to know if you could summarize a bit about what really came out of that in your mind. What 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 was your takeaway after applying those? Absolutely. So I've already mentioned two of the examples, one being the limited test ban treaty and the other being the response to the 2007 Chinese ASAT test. And so between those two, the third is the UN debris mitigation guidelines, uh, which were approved by the UN's General Assembly in 2007, but had actually started as guidelines developed domestically in the U.S., and then introduced uh, in another multilateral forum where they got to negotiate it and then move it on through the UN. And so that's a great example of something that is a non-binding, fully voluntary set of guidelines that ended up with really broad consensus and support. Of course, the, the downside to that one being there are a lot of limits on how much it's been implemented in the decade plus since it was agreed, which you know can be seen as a downside of having these voluntary uh, sets of norms. And so, you know, between that and the other two cases, it's important to mention this isn't a list of Robin's favorite space norms. It is instead meant to demonstrate three different um, kind of corner cases for possibilities in the different approaches. Each of those three sets of norms took completely different paths to get where they are. One was a treaty among a small group of countries that was in the context of the Cuban Missile Crisis and a lot of angst and fear about nuclear weapons, which might not be as replicable today if there isn't that level of public uh, attention when it comes to space. Um, Another is just kind of an ad hoc response that everyone saw a behavior from China and said, we are really concerned about this and don't think it should be acceptable. And then finally, that deliberate, gradual process of getting the voluntary guidelines in multilateral forum. So the the real answer from all of this is to say there is no one size fits all solution. There are different contexts. There is different content in norms. Some rely on very specific capabilities. Some might affect everyone with a stake in space. And so the way you put together a strategy, a process for developing norms should really pay attention to how those trade-offs play out differently at each decision point for each norm. Well, if that's the case, then what questions should policymakers be asking if they're wanting to develop these space norms? Yeah, a great question. And it really all comes back to those four decision points. Each point carries its own set of questions. So, you know, who domestically is responsible for figuring out what the norm is and how we're going to introduce it? You know, who's deciding? Uh, Who are you reaching out to first? And is that going to have any problems with the legitimacy or the commitment later on? What are you setting as the threshold for commitment? How much do you need other states to buy in and say that they're going to um, be a part of a norm and show that they're going to be part of the norm? before you feel confident that that's gonna be a solid idea moving forward. And then finally, where are you going? What's the goal? Where are you trying to end? But the one important question I wanna mention that kind of umbrellas over all of this is, why do you want a, a norm for space? Because there's lots of different possibilities for how the norm is actually supposed to function. Are you trying to prevent anyone from doing anything bad in space ever? Um, That's a tall order when it comes to norms. 
Alternatively, are you trying to develop a more transparent and coordinated system for responding when someone does something uh, unacceptable in space? Or are you perhaps trying to get a better sense, a better way of judging when people do something surprising, whether or not they're doing it in a threatening manner or a negligent manner? Um, so, so many different ways. And really thinking about that first and saying, what is the actual end goal? Why are we trying to develop norms is just so crucial to making it through that development process. Thank you so much for joining us today, Robin, and talking about your paper. Very insightful. I'm sure it's going to make some big waves. It's a really important topic. Everybody can go read it on the aerospace.org slash policy. Um, and thank you so much again for joining the Space Policy Show, filming in person in the Arlington, Virginia office um, across the river from beautiful Washington, D.C. I'm sure people have maybe seen some planes or helicopters fly by. We have a great view of the monument and the Capitol. It's really nice to be in person and very happy to have you join us. Thank you so much. This has been great. Yeah. All right. Back to you, Rebecca. Thank you to Robin and Katrina for taking us through that framework and for coming into the studio today. Thank you to our phenomenal production team, Colleen Stover, James Liggins, and Jordan Bingham. Don't forget to look for the paper, Building Normentum at aerospace.org policy. And while you're there, sign up for the latest news and alerts. You can check us out on Twitter using hashtag the space policy show. Be sure to look for our podcasts and share your favorite episodes with colleagues. We look forward to having you tune into our next episode and until then, take care.